I love Dan. He is he's one of my biggest encouragers. I'm so grateful for him sharing his story uh, with us. And I know that, that Dan and nobody in his family would choose his disability. And I know none of us would choose to have that disability. But I'm wondering, is there anybody else like me that you feel like he has an advantage over us? Like, what is it like to be surprised? I mean, legitimately surprised by the resurrection. What is it like to so drastically go from just like the death of hope to this hope, even in death? And today is a day of excitement. Today is a day of triumph and celebration. That's what Easter is about. I love Easter. But I'm going to ask you to do something that might feel impossible. Just for a moment, would you try to to temper any enthusiasm or joy that you might have, any hope that you might have. And to whatever degree you can, can we try to, just for a second, get in the headspace and get in the heart space of those friends and followers of Jesus who were stuck in the immediate aftermath of his violent, brutal execution. On that first Easter Sunday morning, they were doing exactly what we would be doing If a dear loved one had died, they were grieving. They were wrecked. They weren't just down. They were down for the count. It was hopeless. And they expected Jesus, they expected Jesus to do exactly what dead people always do, stay dead. And one pastor described it this way, nobody expected nobody. So with that in mind, let's turn our attention to John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. A lot of times, people in the Bible, they all, a lot of them share the same name. And so just for clarification, this isn't Mary, Jesus' mom. This is a totally different lady named Mary, Mary Magdalene. And so she came, she just discovered the empty tomb, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken my Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. See, she thought she walked up on a crime scene. She didn't walk up to the empty tomb and think, miracle. She wasn't thinking, resurrection, I knew it. That would have been just as ludicrous to her. Just as ludicrous to her as it would be to you and to me if we were going to take flowers to the graveside of a loved one and we walk up and we see just a big hole in front of the headstone with an open, empty casket. There'd only be one question. One question would be this. What kind of a sick person could commit a heartless crime like this? That's what she was thinking. And they're, they're probably a little bit different from us. We'd be thinking, why would someone do this? This would seem senseless to us, but to them, it would make some sense. For someone to rob a grave, it'd be motivated by greed, by money. We could go back to the previous chapter and the way that it ended, and it tells us about a couple of guys who were following Jesus on the down low. One of them is described as a secret disciple of Jesus. His name was Joseph of Arimathea. There's another guy named Nicodemus, and both of these men are wealthy, and they're just brokenhearted that Jesus had died. And so they wanted to honor him, and and so they bought a bunch of linens and 75 pounds of oils and 
and spices to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And that's the kind of loot the grave robbers would have been after. If they could salvage it, they could flip it for some quick cash. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. John doesn't name himself, but when he says the other disciple, he's writing about himself. So Peter and the other disciple, John, started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I know this is serious, but I just think it's kind of awesome that John makes sure that for all time everyone knows he was faster. (laughs) And he's not running so fast. He's not sprinting there so he could be the first person to hug Jesus. Remember, they are in crime-solving mode. He bent over, and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. This is where it starts to get weird. What are the linens doing there? This word right here, looked, it doesn't simply mean that he saw physically with his eyes. He's analyzing. He's analyzing the information. He's analyzing the scene and the evidence that's in front of them. Why were the linens there? Remember that if grave robbers were going to rob the tomb, they're going to try and salvage as much oil and spices as they can so they could sell it. And so there would be, I mean, really one of two options. The, the, the grave robbers, they would run in and they would pick up the whole body linens and all and take it away somewhere else. It just doesn't make any sense that they would rip off the linens and carry off a dead naked body. What they might do is they could rip off the linens to try and scrape off all the oils and spices from that, and they would gather up any jars of that that was remaining in the tomb and take that somewhere else and leave the body behind. But the linens remained, the burial materials remained, and the body was gone. That doesn't make any sense. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there. As well as, the, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped up around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Have you ever experienced something? And it's real. I mean, you know you're experiencing it. You just have no category for it whatsoever. They had a category. They had an explanation for why the tomb might be empty. But the evidence that was left in the empty tomb did not line up with it. There's, just, there's, no, obvi- there's no natural explanation for what's happening. Finally, the other disciple, that's John, he's spent some time, he's been lingering, he works up the nerve, he gets past the shock, he goes inside. The other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he also went inside, and he saw, and what did he do? He believed. They still didn't understand from Scripture that Jesus had to be crucified and had to rise from the dead. They didn't get that, they just knew, he knew something good happened. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. I'm sure there are all kinds of important factors that that led you to believe that it's important for you to be here today. We all have that. And some of us came because we want to worship and we want to celebrate. And some of you, you may not know exactly what to do with with Jesus. You don't know where you stand with it or with the, the claim of the resurrection. But this is something that's important to your family, so you came to honor your family. And maybe you're here today because a friend invited you, and that's a meaningful thing to you, so of course you would, you would come. I would imagine that there's some of us, plenty of us, who showed up today with a kind of urgent curiosity. Maybe there's something going down in your life, and you need to know, does this church stuff, does this Jesus stuff, does it have any real benefit for you? I want to suggest today that there's something else 
that's also important. It's actually so important that it tops all the other important things that led us to be here together right now. And it's a question. The question is this, is it true that Jesus actually, literally, physically rose from the dead? You see, if this isn't true, we're all just cosplaying at a pretty lame hobby. A dead Jesus is a worthless Jesus. And some people may be in the room or watching online, and you're trying to figure out how can serious-minded people take seriously that Jesus actually, literally, physically rose from the dead. I get it. I really do. I totally understand why someone would say, come on, isn't, isn't it more likely that there's another explanation that better it kind of describes what happened? Isn't it, isn't, it possible that, isn't it possible that his friends and his followers, they wanted to, they wanted to, believe it so bad, they wanted this to be true so badly that they were vulnerable to believe a hoax. Is it possible that they wanted this movement to keep going so badly that they just kind of went along with something they knew wasn't true? That can make sense, right? How about this one? Motivated by power and money and celebrity, they crafted a lie and told everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead. See, I get it. Those, those explanations, they have some natural appeal, and yet the facts of history don't allow a serious-minded person to take those counter-explanations seriously. This is the time of year I'm drawn to a guy named Bart Ehrman. I just, I, I, I like to look at and listen to some of the things that he's read and read some of the things, excuse me, read some of the things that he's written. Um, and if you don't know who he is, he is one of the foremost New Testament experts on the planet. He's also a committed agnostic. They try to figure this out. He does not believe that, uh, that Jesus rose from the dead. He's not at an Easter service today. I mean, I don't know. He's a good guy. If his mama invited him, he probably went. But he doesn't believe in the resurrection. And yet he wrote this, that Jesus' followers and later Paul had resurrection experiences is, in my judgment, a fact. What the reality was that gave rise to the experiences, I do not know. They believed this, they lived for it, and they died for it. They didn't get any power. They didn't get any money. They did get a lot of celebrity, but it only came after they were tortured and killed. Do people die for things that are a lie? Yeah, all the time. But people don't willingly face torture and death for things that they know are a lie, things they know they made up. I want you to let this sink in for a moment. One of the most informed scholars on the planet, who is also very skeptical, concedes as a fact that the eyewitnesses were so convinced that Jesus rose from the dead that they would rather die themselves than to not share that good news. And so I want to ask you, what do you believe? And I get it, no one wants to be tricked, no one wants to be deceived, and no one wants to be gullible. That's never considered a compliment. People who believe without good reasons are gullible. When I was in college, I once said to, uh, to a friend, uh, hey, you know, every uh, stop sign with a white border around it, that's actually a yield sign. You don't have to stop. A couple of weeks later, I was walking across campus, and her roommate uh, chewed me out because this girl believed me, and she'd been blowing through stop signs all over town. 
I was just joking. I didn't know she was going to take it seriously. Nobody wants to be this. Did you know there's a flip side to this? Yeah, it's true that people who believe without good reasons are gullible. People who disbelieve without good reasons are arbitrary. Whether we believe or disbelieve, we owe it to ourselves. Whether you believe or disbelieve, you owe it to you. You're so valuable. You owe it to you to know why you believe and don't believe what it is you believe and don't believe. You owe it to you. And the historical event of the resurrection is what launched the gospel movement. It is what launched Christianity. And the people who were eyewitnesses to it, they wrote down their accounts. John did. Matthew did. Peter did. Paul did. A guy named Luke, he wasn't there, but he gathered up all the eyewitness testimonies and he wrote it down. And believe it or not, there were other contemporary historians of the day and they, they wrote about it even though they didn't believe in Jesus. If you reject the resurrection or if you hold the resurrection at arm's length because you're an evidence-based person, you would have to discredit all the eyewitness accounts and that's far more, it's far more difficult than a lot of times people realize because you can't just dismiss the eyewitness accounts. You have to discredit every single one of them with evidence and facts from the first century. You can't just dismiss the empty tomb. You have to explain it with first century facts and evidence. So let me ask you this, just directly, honestly, sincerely. How do you explain the empty tomb? How do you explain all of these eyewitness accounts? How do you explain how it changed their lives? How do you explain that they were willing to face torture and death when all they had to do was just recant and they would have been fine? Open-minded people, evidence-based people, reasonable people are people who follow the facts and follow the evidence. They'll follow the truth wherever it is that truth takes them. And what we're talking about today, it is far more urgent than some abstract, academic, or philosophical exercise. This is personal. It's personal for me. It's personal for you. I want to show you an example of how it's personal. As John continues, he says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. And he asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking that he was the gardener. She said, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Is there anybody in your life that they say your name in a way different than anybody else can say it? It's kind of special when they say your name. And Jesus said, Mary. And at that, in Aramaic, she cried out, Rabboni, which means teacher. She said, and then Jesus said, don't hold on to me for I've yet to ascend to my father. It's not him saying, listen, don't touch me. It's he saying, you're squeezing me too tight. I've got to ascend to my father. And so he said, go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. 
Now, I'm going to do something next that someone who's speaking public, publicly is never supposed to do. I'm going to ask you a question, and I'm not going to help us answer it because I don't know the answer. Why did the angels and Jesus show up only after the men left? I don't know what you know about this part of the world in the first century. It was highly patriarchal and deeply religious. And those two factors touched every aspect of life. Did you know that in this part of the world in the first century, a woman's testimony did not count in court? I'm curious what you know about Mary Magdalene and her backstory. You read in Luke chapter 8, there's a time Jesus cast many demons out of her. In a highly patriarchal society, her testimony did not count. And in a deeply religious society, because of her past, a lot of people would have just said her testimony isn't even credible. I don't know that I know the answer to this question, but I know this. If you are going to make up an account that you know is not true and you're going to try to convince people of it, you don't start like this. And yet every single one of the four Gospels says that she was there first, she saw Jesus first, and she got to spread the message of his resurrection first. And because of that, for centuries, she's been honored with the title an apostle to the apostles, the first person to see the resurrected Jesus, the first person to proclaim he has risen. She's the first person that Jesus wanted to engage She's the first person that Jesus intentionally chose to talk to and to comfort on that first Easter morning. And so I hope that we can see this. All the things, all the labels, all the categories that people sometimes use to to place value assessments on others, they don't mean anything to Jesus. He loves you. He sees you. And in the same way that he called her name, he calls you by name. And I think that there's something else going on here that's at least worth looking at for a couple of seconds. It says, she thought he was the gardener. Was she right or was she wrong to think of Jesus as the gardener? If you read the Bible, I mean like really read it, this is what you're going to discover, that it is one massive, cohesive story. And from beginning to end, there are these imagery-rich themes that are woven in from back to front and front to back. It's all over. And one of the imagery-rich themes that pops up over and over again throughout the Bible is the theme of gardens. In the beginning, humanity was created to be in relationship with God and live inside of a garden. If you fast forward to the end, for everyone who trusts in Christ, when we're with him face-to-face in heaven, it's described like a garden. In the Old Testament, every time just about that God had a personal encounter with someone, it's adjacent to garden imagery. The Old Testament temple was filled with garden imagery, and now in a garden, Jesus reveals that he has risen from the dead. I think Mary was more right than she knew. Jesus isn't a gardener. He's the gardener. And everything, everything that was wrecked and ruined, all the hurt, all the death, all the shame, all the regret that ushered in in that first garden because of sin, through his resurrection, Jesus is redeeming and restoring and making new. Back in that original garden, 
when Adam and Eve sinned, when they ate the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and by the way, that wasn't about knowing the difference between good and evil, it was about them declaring that they could define that for themselves, that they could be their own moral authority. The serpent, the deceiver, the father of lies comes to Eve and tricks her into thinking that the tree of death is a tree of life. But now on this first Resurrection Sunday in the garden, Mary is thinking about the cross which she believed was a tree of death. Jesus says, no, 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 no. That is a tree of eternal life for you. Humanity was kicked out of the garden because of sin and pride. And all of humanity is invited back into an eternal garden through the humble sacrifice of a Savior. And that original garden, because of sin, we lost everything. But on the cross, Jesus gave everything. And the cross makes all kinds of promises that the resurrection validates, that you are loved, that you are accepted, that you are forgiven, that you are made brand new, that you can have eternal life. And the resurrection proves that it's not hype, it's not hollow, it is an unshakable foundation of hope. And on that first Resurrection Sunday, as Mary is weeping and all that she can think and all that she can feel and all that she can smell is death, Jesus shows up and shows her that he turns graves into gardens. I don't know if any of you saw footage, saw any video of a worship service this past week from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, the church where the shooting happened. The place was packed and people sang loudly. How is it that Christians are able to bellow out their songs of praise and worship even in the face of tragedy? How is it, how is it that Christians are able just to be filled with deep, belly-filled laughter at a funeral? It's because we know the gardener. We know the one who turns death into life. And he gives that generously to you. John says that when Jesus called her name and she realized it was Jesus, she latched onto him with a vice grip hug. You ever hug anybody like that? When I was about seven years old, my dad got a job overseas and he was gone for about four months and uh, it was hard on my mom, hard on my brother, hard on me. When he finally was able to come home, we went and met him at the airport and this is back in the day where you could actually be there in the terminal when someone stepped off the plane and when my mom recognized my dad, she ran up and gave him a big old hug but she simultaneously fainted and they both just hit the ground. And so we're surrounded by this crowd of strangers who are laughing and cheering. When you know when it strikes you that the resurrection is true and you know what it means and you know that he is calling you by name, what else can you do but grab a hold of Jesus? He loves you. He calls you by name. And he sees you. And he sees all the things about you that you hope no one sees. And he says to you, I've got that covered. I love how Paul talks about the cross. He says, God made Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The tomb is empty. Jesus has walked out of the grave. He's not in the grave. But some of us are. 
sin, disbelief, religiosity, self-righteousness, trying to be our own moral authority, trying to create our own meaning and purpose in life, trying to do it all on our own. It is a tomb. It's a grave, and it leads to death. Our sin leads to death. And on this Easter Sunday morning, we celebrate that his tomb is empty, that he walked out of the grave. But you know what we celebrate too? That there is an invitation that is to every single one of us that we can walk out of the grave of our sin and into the garden of eternal life because of what he has done for us. He extends to us his own righteousness as though it were our own. And if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, all of that righteousness, all of that love, all of that acceptance, all of that forgiveness, that entire new life can be yours too. And that's what the Bible means when it says you can be saved too. Would you trust him? Would you accept him? Would you give your life to him?